Hello and welcome to Tech Weekly by CityAM. I'm Nassim Dasova and today I'm joined by Charlie Conchi, our investment reporter, and Lily Russell-Jones, our crypto reporter. We'll be going through some choice stories from this week to hopefully provide some food for thought about what's been happening in the world of tech, crypto, fintech, and beyond. So Lily, what's been going on with uh, El Salvador this week? So there's a fairly big crypto story coming from El Salvador. The IMF has urged them to rethink their crypto policy. So you may remember back in September, El Salvador became the first country in the world to make crypto legal tender alongside the dollar, which meant that all businesses had to start accepting Bitcoin. The IMF has now consulted on the policy and this week urged El Salvador to remove Bitcoin status as legal tender, citing financial stability risks, risk to financial integrity and consumer protection. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting story. And what do you think this means for El Salvador going forward? Do you think it's likely that uh, they'll follow the IMS guidance? So El Salvador is seeking a $1.3 billion loan from the IMF. And I think that talks have stalled partly because of this policy. Mm. So they might be under some pressure to reverse it, but it doesn't look like um, Nayib Bukele, who is El Salvador's president, has any intention of doing that. And in fact, he tweeted a response using a meme from the simpsons and basically <laughs> said i see that imf that's nice but didn't seem to have any kind of sense of contrition towards their demands mm. so it's been a few months since bitcoin became legal tender in el salvador does the local population see it in a more positive light now that they've had time to acclimatize themselves to it yeah i mean it's really difficult to know from the outside exactly what's going on so mm. the government passed it with a super majority back in june the policy mm. itself 62 members voted in favor of it 19 opposed and three abstained mm. um, but at the time a poll showed that 93 percent of el salvador's population opposed the policy and since then we've seen protests technical glitches and wild swings in the price of bitcoin which have all caused problems with the scheme so domestically i think it's safe to say that people have their doubts mm. on the other hand el salvador's president keeps saying that it's really popular i think according to the latest count four million people have downloaded the government issued bitcoin wallet oh wow but it is difficult to assess how accurate those claims are because he said that more people now have the government's Bitcoin wallet than have a bank account, which is mm. a huge claim. Mm. Yeah. And I guess it's interesting because maybe 4 million people have downloaded it, but wasn't uh, wasn't there already £22 uh, worth of Bitcoin in the wallet? So there was already an incentive to download it. So perhaps they might have downloaded it, but taken the money out and then not done anything else with it. Yeah, I think we've seen reports of there being money missing, actually, from some mm. of these accounts. Mm. So I think that there are still some things to be ironed out. That hasn't stopped the government from buying more, though. <laughs> so this week, the market crashed and Bitcoin's price was down around 33000 which is more than 50% off what its peak was in November when it hit 69000 mm. And um, the president said he'd taken the opportunity to buy 410 more Bitcoins for $15 million dollars. So potentially quite a bit lost by the government over the last few months on their Bitcoin holdings. So have have businesses benefited from this switch to Bitcoin as a legal tender? Well, interestingly, this week, um, El Salvador's government announced that they were going to be offering crypto backed loans to small and medium sized businesses. So I think potentially there's been an opportunity to secure access to a new form of financing for them or a, an easier form of financing for them to get hold of. 
However, I think that the obvious problem with businesses accepting Bitcoin and having to accept Bitcoin, whether they want to or not, is that price volatility is a real issue. I think that's something that the IMF picked up on in their report, as they mentioned that financial stability is a problem because of this policy. So I think that's one of the main concerns. And for our next story, Charlie, it looks like Klarna are moving into the physical realm. Yes, it's been a, a very busy week in the a sort of world of buy now, pay later firms. Um, Klarna, kind of the market leader and Europe's most valuable fintech, launched its Klarna card in the UK. So it'll essentially allow shoppers to now buy now and pay later in stores. Um, so mm. their first kind of foray into real world payments in the UK. Um, it has seen some take up in in Europe previously it's been launched in Germany and Sweden um in mm. the last year or so they they've seen about 800,000 customers there um so this is an interesting development in the UK i think at a time when we're sort of expecting regulation to come in the sector later this year this is an interesting step to take um buy now pay later products and sort of unsecured credit um into the in-store world yeah, it's uh, it's a big move. What's the general reaction been like? So I think the, the consumer reaction has been positive on the whole. Klarna, as I said, launched this in Germany, Sweden, seen big take up there. It has 400,000 customers lined up for the UK card already. Um, they mm. registered um, via the app um, over the past few months. But inevitably, as with anything sort of buy now, pay later related, it has come under fire from a lot of different quarters Um the cards essentially aren't covered by Section 75 regulations, which with credit cards allows buyers to to make a claim um, in the event of, a say, a problem with a purchase. Mm. Um, the card isn't also covered by the Financial Ombudsman Service, um, which does mediate the disputes when they do arise between credit card companies and shoppers. Mm. Um, interactive Investor um, said today that it, it sounds like a credit card, looks like one, but... Crucially, from a regulatory perspective, it isn't one. Um, and they're basically accusing this card of sort of quacking like a credit card, but um, that not being regulated in the same way. Um, and I think we've seen that kind of similar criticism with a lot of um, buy now, pay later pro- products, um, essentially that they they are a form of credit, but they don't, they kind of blur the lines there between what, what shoppers are really getting into. Mm. Um, Klarna, in its defense has said that it deliberately didn't describe it as a credit card because um as it said there's there's some crucial differences one being that there's never any interest mm. um repayments are linked to a specific purchase mm. um and spending limits are reevaluated on a daily basis um but this this kind of debate does follow on from a lot of research recently as the the sort of debate rages on about how to regulate buy now pay later um Groups like which the consumer watchdog said recently that people still thought of buy now, pay later as a money management tool rather than a form of debt. Um, and that has been a sort of ongoing theme throughout all buy now, pay later products, really, that, that consumers perhaps don't realise they are taking on a, a form of debt. So how is this product different to a credit card? Because it sounds like they're potentially quite similar. So I think the key difference is that um, a credit card is essentially funded by the user of the card. Um, it's you know interest on the card, it's fees that are charged for payments. Um, whereas when you look at a buy now, pay later product, it is largely funded by the merchant. So Klarna will work with a series of say retailers um, who will pay Klarna a chunk um, for you know using their services. Um, so that is, I think, the, the key distinction there between a credit card, which does, you know, charge 
APRs and um, fees as opposed to a buy now, pay later product, which is just um, funded by the middleman, the retailer, as it were. And you've spoken to quite a few buy now, pay later firms today. Is there a sense that they're concerned about regulation coming down the line? Um, so I've spoken with a couple of buy now, pay later firms in the last couple of days, and they have really doubled down on the calls that they've been making throughout um, this regulatory process and said that they, they think the time is right for regulation, that they welcome um, the FCA and the Treasury looking into um, looking into regulating the space. Um, but I think the concerns are still there from watchers on just the, the speed with which buy now, pay later has expanded over the last few years, particularly through the pandemic um, and the sort of the exposure of often younger people to um, unsecured credit via buy now, pay later platforms. And the consumer research, um, you know, that I mentioned earlier does kind of speak to that, that there is still a, a fundamental misunderstanding in some cases around what buy now, pay later platforms offer. Um, and, and consumers often don't realise that they're taking on a, a form of um, a form of debt when they do use these products. Mm. And so what's next for buy now, pay later, do you think? So buy now, pay later firms are expecting regulation towards the end of this year or sort of early next year. Um, but there are some interesting developments outside of just purely buy now, pay later providers. So banks mm. are increasingly making a move into the space. Um, Santander made a big announcement this week that it was going to start rolling out a buy now, pay later product called Zinia um, across its European markets, um, mm. launching initially in Germany and the Netherlands, um, and then rolling out beyond that this year um britain as well i think is going to be included within that market so it's a, an interesting sign of the times that banks are um not only just kind of tagging on buy now pay later products to the credit card offers um they have but actually launching specific platforms um and products like zinnia um that are targeting buy now pay later um so it's it's i think going to be an interesting interesting year as banks sort of see the opportunity there with buy now pay later and, and try and move in on that as well and so for our final story lily looks like facebook's been selling off its dm assets what's been going on there that's right so meta formerly known as facebook is selling assets associated with digital currency dm formerly known as libra What's happening there is that the DM Association, which was the name of the project which was bringing forward Meta's plans for its own digital currency, mm. is now winding down um, and Facebook is seemingly abandoning that project. Mm. And would you say this is the end of uh, Meta or Facebook's crypto ambitions? I don't think so. So Facebook obviously changed its name to Meta to signal its support for the metaverse. And that's a concept which is really closely linked to crypto. Mm. Um, so the creative economy is supposed to be fundamental to the idea of the metaverse. So that might mean using digital assets as a way to reimburse people for NFTs, games or services being provided in a new virtual reality space that Facebook is trying to create. Um, mm. And Meta is reportedly working on an NFT feature for Instagram and Facebook. And it's also looking at building a digital asset wallet. It's already trialed the Novi wallet with a small scale pilot. Um, and I think apparently there are plans for it to link that with NFTs. I think what's interesting, though, is that Meta has faced a lot of regulatory kind of backlash over its plans for a commercial stablecoin. Um, and I know that it's something that other companies are also looking into, so might have to look at quite closely. Another problem that Meta has faced is that the public aren't really on side with their goals in the crypto space. Mm. 
And so do you think stable coins could underpin a future payment system or do you reckon um, CBDCs, um, that central bank digital currencies, uh, do you reckon they'd be a more likely candidate for that role? Well, I think the kind of world financial system and institutions have seen the potential in digital payments technology like either the private version, which you can is one road you could do, go down with stable coins, mm. or the public version through CBDCs, which would be controlled by central banks. Um, Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, made some quite interesting comments about the risks presented by stable coins and the importance of having a central bank digital currency instead. So he said, if Facebook were to decide to introduce a stable coin, I think that would pose a very big challenge to the system. He made that comment earlier this month. And um, basically what he means by that is that if commercial companies like Facebook start um, distributing a digital currency, which is widely used, they essentially take over a function which is reserved for central banks at the moment. Um, and it also, it raises problems around kind of financial stability and privacy because mm. potentially you'd have yeah. um, a commercial entity with access to everyone's payments data, mm, definitely. which could be a bit of a problem. That does sound uh, very troubling in light of uh, the many problems that Facebook has had uh, in terms of privacy in the past uh, and going forward, who knows um, where that road could take them. I remember when Libra was launched and there was that sort of cabal of companies who all backed Libra mm -hmm. publicly. Did they all withdraw their support completely as time went on? Did, did Are they still involved at all? So I think that the early backers, some of the big names like Visa, they dropped out as soon as um, Mark Zuckerberg basically got dragged before Congress, um, at which point I think he was accused of like jeopardizing privacy and financial stability with the project. And it was also a time when crypto assets were kind of less, less reputable, shall we say. <laughs> so I think that Congress were concerned that he was going to be like aiding criminals and um, money laundering by <laughs> launching this payment system without governmental oversight. Yeah. <laughs> so it hasn't been easy, um, but they are selling the project. So they're selling it for the assets of DM for I think 200 million to Silvergate Capital, which is a San Francisco based firm, mm. which has been helping them to develop the project. And it was going to help them issue the DM stablecoin, which was supposed to be pegged to the price of the dollar. Mm. Mm. And so and so what are they going to do now that they have all of these sort of DM assets? Do you know? I haven't managed to talk to them. I tried to reach out to them earlier today, but actually we're in completely different time zones. So it was about oh. 6 a.m. in the morning for them. <laughs> I haven't heard anything back just yet, um, but I think that they might carry on with the project. Um, I mean, they've got a section about DM up on their website where they talk about how it's a stable coin that could be used for digital payments. So it might be that when it's no longer attached to Meta, um, it doesn't have quite the same hmm. public publicity and backlash that the coin has got so far. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. So it seems like it ran slightly counter to the idea and the, the sort of spirit of crypto being decentralized when it had this big conglomerate in the middle of it. Do you think that was part of the reason it failed? Well, I think that that's part of the reason that the crypto community um, weren't such a big fan of the stablecoin project coming out of Facebook. So a big concept in crypto is the idea of moving away from Web2, which is the centralized version of the internet where companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon have sort of centralized control towards a system where 
you know, creators monetize, um, can monetize things like their own data um, and the internet can be run in a slightly more decentralized way. Um, and digital assets were seen as kind of part of that uh, process. So from that perspective, I think that having a web two or, you know, second generation web giant being at the center of this kind of crypto project. Yeah, I think that people see that as against the spirit of decentralized finance. Mm. However, you do see from this that there's a big appetite for commercial entities to move into this digital trading system, which will use things like tokenized assets and stable coins. Um, so I think that's quite illustrative of where the space might be heading. Mm. Well, we'll know that we'll be keeping a close eye on developments. Uh, okay, well, thank you both for coming on today. Uh, it's been an enlightening chat as always. Uh, and thanks to everyone for listening. Hope you've all enjoyed uh, and see you all next week. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.